Lord God, we heard this morning in your word that you rejoice over your people as a bridegroom rejoices over his bride. Lord, that, those words are astounding for us to hear. You are our creator, uh, and we're not just objects uh, just to be used by you. We're not just hirelings who work for you. And as amazing it is that you've made us your children that you love, God, this, this image of you as an affectionate bridegroom on the wedding day, your love for us is beyond comprehension. But Lord, we pray that you would help us to, to know how deep and wide and long and high is your love, that we might be filled with the fullness of God. We pray for these young ones that they would know how deeply you love them that, God, you would transform us through that love. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Welcome to Faith. Welcome to uh, our series on the hard teachings of Jesus. Not so much hard uh, to comprehend, but hard to follow. Uh, we've been focusing these last several weeks on the hard teachings about relationships. And uh, we saw a couple weeks ago the call to love our enemies. And I think uh, in light of the recent events with the terrorist attacks, with ISIS, the idea of loving our enemies... Uh, becomes more difficult to comprehend. I think also last week we talked about judge not. Uh, we are to be a people that thinks the best about people, to be a gracious people, and that's a hard thing for us to do. But today we're going to be looking specifically at a relationship that's not an occasional enemy or uh, someone who might be distant that we have a difficult time thinking well of. Uh, today we're going to be focusing on marriage. Uh, and in this passage, uh, it is the most intensive and extensive passage in the Gospels where Jesus addresses uh, the nature and the purpose and the calling in marriage. So let's consider this from Matthew chapter 19. Now when Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. And Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, Have you not read, He who created them from the beginning made them male and female, and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let man not separate. They said to him, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? He said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, Whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. The disciples said to him, If such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. 
But he said to them, not everyone who, not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this, receive it. This is the word of the Lord. Caught in the act of adultery. Uh, These are the words that a pastor spoke uh, as he opened up his devotional at a a New City Network leadership conference, a pastor conference that uh, my wife and I attended. And he was referring to the case in John 8 where uh, the woman was caught in the act of adultery and was attempted to be stoned by these other people and Jesus Jesus advocated for her. But he, he said that his father was a pastor. And when he was six years old, he said his father was caught in the act of adultery. And he said it was the worst day of his life. And he said he vowed that he would do everything in his power to prevent ever, ever falling into that kind of tragic situation. And so this pastor who gave this devotion said he, he, uh, he was a church planner. He had been planting this church in a multi-ethnic urban church committed to the poor. He said he was pastoring this church and and uh, under the strain and stress of the ministry, he and his wife got away. And they were walking along the beach, uh, talking, and their relationship was rather strained. And he uh, found himself saying to her, you are the most discontented and complaining member of the church. And then she responded, It is hard to love your mistress. And he said it stopped him in his track. And he says, I was caught in the act of adultery by my wife. He said he realized that he had his hands on the wrong bride, that the church is Christ's bride, not his He was to serve Christ's bride as an under-shepherd, as a pastor, teacher. He was to tend and care for God's church, but he was not the church's husband. The church was Christ's bride, and he was the only husband. Now, while this pastor was speaking not about a literal adultery, he was stressing a disordered love that had deeply wounded and damage the one who was to be his first love after Christ. Now, whether we struggle with disordered priorities or disordered demands of work or the challenges and the differences of needs and expectations and perspectives between couples or financial stress or mishandling anger or emotional or sexual adultery or infidelity, there are many forces that fight against marriage. And in our text today, we also find religious leaders 
along with some disoriented disciples who revealed various cultural norms that weakened and distorted the purpose and God's intent for marriage. Here Jesus addresses the challenge of marriage, and he shows the diminishment of marriage, the design for marriage, the difficulty in marriage, and the power for marriage, and the power for singleness. It does not escape me as we enter into this subject that there's a lot of pain and trauma related to the strained of failed marriages. I know as a pastor that mostly everyone that I'm speaking to have been touched deeply by either friends or family ourselves who have experienced the strain of hard marriages. So much promise ended so hard for many of us. Some of you are still in the midst of painful, unresolved, broken relationships. So many of us have had parents whose marriage have failed and the scars run deep and wounds are tender. Some of us are yearning for lasting love, but it hasn't happened. Uh, and we wonder, where, where is God in all of this? Well, Jesus speaks to us in this passage, not from an emotionally distant place. He did not treat this subject as a mere academic theological debate like the Pharisees who were testing him to trap him and to dismiss his authority and popularity. Jesus comes full of grace to his disciples and to these, and he clarifies the challenging truths of marriage. And here we see how the Pharisees and the religious thought of the day diminished marriage. The Pharisees came to him and tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? And divorce was a widespread phenomenon in that world. God had instituted a regulation on divorce through Moses that was designed to do several things. It was designed to protect the sanctity of marriage and to protect the woman from a husband who might simply send her away without cause and to document the status and to, of the legitimate divorce so that, that she was not thought of as a harlot or a runaway adulteress. But by the time Jesus came on the scene, the sanctity of marriage was being lost. And among those interpreting and debating these mosaic regulations, especially the meaning of indecency from Deuteronomy 24, which says, when a man takes a wife and marries her, if she then finds no, he then finds, or she finds no favor in his eyes because he found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts, her, puts it in her hand and sends her away out of the house, and she departs out of that house, this is the passage from Deuteronomy 24. There's a lot of discrepancies on exactly what indecency means. And their focus was on if you find any indecency, you have the right to send her away. And, but that passage is actually, if you read that passage, Moses is addressing the issue of how to protect marital fidelity and how to protect a woman whose husband sends her away. Uh, so Moses uh, couldn't put an absolute uh, end to the practice of divorce, but he was regulating it. Well, the discussion among these religious leaders of Jesus' day came to believe that divorce was necessary and legal. The more conservative school of Shammai allowed for divorce only for reasons of unchastity or sexual immorality, adultery. But the more liberal school of Hillel 
said that the Mosaic stipulation of indecency allowed a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason, even if she spoiled a dish for him. Anything that the husband might construe as bringing injury to his reputation, talking too much, uh, being a less satisfactory cook, any of these uh, could be written down against his wife and processed through the religious authorities and the wife would be out. The husband then would be free to pursue another woman until he tired of her and another and then another. This was all perfectly legal in their context. And Jesus' extension of his law strips this pretense, the pretense of using a woman and discarding her uh, was no less an adultery in his mind. You know, so many ways marriage is diminished or the nature of marriage is diminished. I had uh, spoken to uh, elder, former elder Will Brown uh, about a particular case of the IRS uh, some years ago. A couple, they were mathematicians uh, with NSA, and uh, they discovered uh, that it was more financially advantageous if they divorced before the end of the year uh, to avoid the marriage penalty. Apparently, it cost more to... Uh, in taxes as a couple than as individuals. And so at the end, before December the 31st, uh, they got divorced uh, for financial reasons. And eventually the IRS caught up with them and had, took the case, and, and uh, they overturned their, their uh, attempts to, for financial gain. But marriage and uh, divorce uh, have all kinds of challenges in our society. Many times couples, or a few times couples, have come to me and they've wanted a quick marriage. Uh, I've had couples come to me and said, we'd like to get married in two weeks. Will you marry us? And I say, I would really like to marry you, but marriage is a really major commitment. And, you know, I need, we need to talk about the definition of marriage, the purpose of marriage, we need to talk about communication in marriage and finance in marriage and in-laws in marriage. And, you know, and they said, look, we just want to get married. <clears throat> and I've had to turn couples down that they're really uh, serious about wanting to get married in that kind of period of time. And every single one of those, those couples that decided, well, you know, we'll find someone else, and they got married, they're, they're divorced. You know, marriage is a hard, it's a hard thing to have a good marriage and to strengthen our marriages. And so uh, Jesus shows that in our culture where there's a tendency to diminish uh, marriages. Well, Jesus goes back to the original intention uh, that God had for marriage in the Mosaic regulation. And he goes beyond the Mosaic regulation and he goes to the Genesis account, uh, the permanent union of a man and a woman. And so he finds, he says, have you not read? They should have read. <laughs> These were Pharisees. They should have known their Bibles. Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And by the way, uh, Jesus uh, affirms the nature of, of, of inspiration of the Old Testament in this, in this statement. Uh, he doesn't refer to, didn't, didn't, didn't you read what Moses said? He says, have you not read, he who created them from the beginning made them male and female. And so Jesus is affirming the aspect of, 
of, God, of the scriptures as being from God. But they says what God has joined together uh, implies that marriage is not merely a human agreement, but a relationship in which God changes the status of a man and a woman from being single, they are no longer two, to being married, one, flesh. And from that moment, they're married. Uh, they are unified in some kind of mysterious way that belongs to no other human relationship, having all the God-given rights and responsibilities of marriage that they, are, uh, that they did not have before. They are a union. One flesh, the sexual union of a husband and wife, makes them in this one flesh orientation. And there's no longer, uh, they're no longer in the parents' household. The parents' relationship and that family is now secondary to their relationship. Their relationship is now the primary relationship. And no one else is to separate them. Jesus avoids the Pharisaic argument about reasons for divorce, and he goes back to the beginning of creation to demonstrate God's intention for the institution of marriage. It's a permanent bond between a man and a woman and joins them into a new union that's concentrate, consecrated through physical intercourse. Now, marriage is not fundamentally about the couple or the happiness of the couple. Marriage is fundamentally about witnessing the mystery of the gospel of God's love for sinners and of Christ's sacrificial love for his bride, the church. You know, when marriage was addressed in Ephesians chapter 5 with Paul, you know, he talks about the responsibility of the husband to the wife and the wife to the husband and how they're to submit and, and uh, support each other. But in that passage, Paul says, for this reason, and he goes back to this Genesis account, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. He says, this is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. He refers to this this passage from Genesis on marriage between a man and a woman, and he says, this is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. However, each of you must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. The marriage of a man and a woman is to reflect the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is to reflect the good news that God so loved the world, he sent his son who loved his bride so much that he gave up his life for her. And so Christ is modeling for us what the man is to be to the wife and, and the wife, the church, to the, to, the bride, to the bridegroom. And so the breaking of this covenant is a serious thing. And Jesus says there's only one uh, legitimate reason for breaking, and that is for sexual immorality, or porneia. This implies that, divorce and, and he, that implies that divorce and remarriage on the grounds of sexual immorality are not prohibited and thus do not constitute adultery to remarry. This is the one exception that Jesus makes to the requirement that marriage be lifelong. Uh, there was a big study paper by our denomination uh, on um, marriage and divorce and remarriage uh, it was like 118 pages, and they studied all of the scriptures concerning these matters. And uh, 
one of the things it raises, and of course Paul addresses the nature of what would constitute the the breaking of a marriage covenant, and and a lot of that is focused in chapter 7, 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Uh, And it talks about the aspect of abandonment or desertion. One spouse deserts the other, just leaves the relationship. And Paul talks about that uh, the believer is no longer bound in those situations. And there's questions of, well, what, what constitutes leaving and abandoning and deserting a spouse? And it was declared that a physical, chronic, or habitual physical abuse would fall into that kind of category. Or some type of imposition of intolerable conditions. Uh, but uh, one of the things that they said is that they must not be interpreted in any way that opens the floodgates to divorces based on subjective reasons such as irre- irreconcilable differences or emotional separation or loss of affection or like. There is often great pain involved in marriage, and God intends for his people to work through the pain and to learn to love even when we are not loved by another. Emotional problems in and of themselves are not biblical grounds for divorce. And so he refers to the... Uh, the calling to protect those marriage bonds. Well, this phrase is, you know, the disciples are hearing this dialogue between Jesus and the Pharisees. Jesus raises the notch, or he raises the bar on the call of marriage in that it is not something that you can just get out of. And the disciples say, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. You know, they had taken on those cultural values around them, thinking that you could get out of the marriage in a, in a, in a God-pleasing way. And so Jesus corrects the disciples' self-centered orientation about marriage. Wow, if that is the only escape clause in marriage, and it's hard to get out, it's better not to marry. Well, Jesus doesn't argue that marriage is not hard and difficult. But again, marriage is not fundamentally about you, about me. While marriage has wonderful capacity to be a means of grace and companionship and support and to create family, the purpose of marriage is not foremost about me or the couple or the happiness of the couple. Marriage is foremost about God and displaying his person and character in the marriage. And Jesus anchors, again, marriage and the creation of man and woman. You know, the, the whole nature of you know, created male and female that Jesus talks about, we are created in the image of God, male and female. And then Jesus then goes right to Genesis 2 and talks about the, the man and the woman in marriage. Well, what's going on? Well, we are reflecting in our marriages... Uh, the nature of the communion and the intimacy and the union of, of the Godhead, of Christ, the Son, and God the Father, and the Holy Spirit, uh, who is eternal and always existed in community. You know, it says each person of the Trinity loves and honors and glorifies the other and receives love and glory and honor back. And so in our relationships... Uh, you know, we're to reflect that communion of, of God. We're built in the image of God. The problem is that God's perfect, you know. God's perfect. He's without sin. 
Uh, he's not messed up over thinking how he's going to get his needs met. He doesn't have any needs. Uh, he doesn't think about his dignity. He doesn't think about his glory because he's full of it all the time. He doesn't have to wonder whether he is loved and appreciated because love is who he is and He's surrounded by love with the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. They're constantly honoring and glorifying and loving one another. They are always full of love, but that's not us, is it? We are sinners. <laughs> Since the fall, we're always struggling with insecurity, with insignificance, with our dignity, and we're wondering whether we're wanted, whether we're loved. We're so damaged and disoriented that we think we can get from others what only God can give to us, and there's unhealthy codependencies, and we have a hard time with boundaries and guarding our relationships, and, and we commit, overcommit to outside relationships, and we overwork, and the world orders or encourages this disorientation, and, and we forgot about Christ and his love for us, and, and we rob our spouses, we rob our children, and keeping our marriages strong, it takes a lot of work. It is not easy. We are messed up. There are many forces that fight against our marriages. So, some of you have read Maria's book about uh, our beginnings. You know, so in 1980, uh, right after we were married, one week after we had a honeymoon for one short week, and then I was the head counselor at this youth camp out in Colorado. And so, we take off with a bunch of high school youth in the car to travel across the country to this Colorado, the second week of our marriage. And uh, we're put in this cabin uh, in our room. With, it was a girl's cabin, and our, we had a separate room in this cabin that was, you know, was a curtain in between everything else. And, and uh, I had a talk with Maria. I said, we just need to get through this week. And so I'll probably be having to, you know, spend a lot of time with uh, the other counselors and leaders and, and uh, I'll never forget seeing her in the woods in tears. And she came up to me and she says, I don't want a divorce. And this is the second year, I mean, second week of our marriage. And I was just like in shock. But I realized that I was overleading and I was underloving my wife. But I didn't realize that enough. And, you know, as a young married couple, you know, you, my orientation was that, you know, God blessed us so much and provided so much for us, and we had such great support that, you know, we're called just to serve the kingdom, just get out there and serve the kingdom. So I was in this internship. Within four months of this internship, uh, they asked us if we would be interested in helping to develop this work, mission work in Baltimore City. And so we were. And... Uh, so that became Faith Christian Fellowship. But within that first year of our marriage, um, we started this church plant. That's in four months of our marriage. And Maria was pregnant in the first four months of our marriage. And then I was commuting to Philadelphia to go to seminary to transfer to finish my seminary work. And we bought a house, five-unit apartment house, slumlord apartment house to renovate down here on Greenmount Avenue. And... Our church was launched in that first year, and a baby was born. And I had no one to put the brakes on and say, Craig, this is way out of order. 
And, you know, there's a verse in Deuteronomy chapter 24. Do we have that in here? Uh, <coughs> this is, actually, this is, by the way, in the same passage of Deuteronomy 24 with all this weird about the indecency. The focus of this text is about the protection of the woman. Okay? This is a radical thing, by the way. Uh, in in uh, Israel's Jewish culture, God was about honoring and protecting the dignity of women. That was astounding. That was very different from other cultures. But here's Here's, here's God's command. If a man is recently married, he must not be sent to war or to have any other duty laid on him. For one year, he is to be free to stay at home and bring happiness to the wife he has married. I, can, I would think there's a lot of women that would say, yes, I, w- I want what's coming to me. <laughs> and you know, I didn't, I didn't know this verse when we started. And I didn't have any elders or shepherds uh, who knew this to say, Craig, I don't think you should be, like, engaged in this intensively. And what happened for us in that first year was that certain patterns of engagement started to get rooted. And I have to tell you that I have struggled loving my wife as Christ loves the church uh, many times. And I sat in that devotion of that pastor that spoke and I realized that, you know, I was the man who wasn't just caught in adultery. I was a serial adulterer <laughs> in, in, in some sense. And I have often despaired. I don't know how to be a good pastor and a good husband. I don't know how to do both of those things. And after I heard this guy's uh, devotion, I was, I was despairing once again. I said, God, I don't know how to be a good husband and a good pastor. There are just so many forces that I just don't know how to do that. And you know what I heard from the God? This is what I heard. Craig, I'm not calling you to be a good husband or a good pastor. Just like I am not calling you to be a good Christian. I'm calling you to be a repenting husband and a repenting pastor, a humble pastor, a broken husband, a wounded person. I am calling you to faith and to come to me for daily grace. I want you to love me and follow me so that I can show you how to love and bless and build up your wife. And so I come to you even as I've reviewed this text today that I'm not coming here that I'm, you know, on top of these things. I, I confess to you that I come to you as a, as a man often broken in my own disordered loves. And, uh, and so we need a lot of grace uh, to fulfill this calling because it is extremely difficult. Uh, one of the things, by the way, that uh, and there's a slide here of Bob Jenkins. Uh, it's, there's four people. But uh, one of the things that I've always appreciated... <laughs> about the beginnings of our church is uh, God bringing certain leaders. Bill Bowling, uh, uh, Bob Jenkins, uh, these were the first two elders of our church, and that's Gene Jenkins in the middle. Uh, Bob Jenkins was uh, an alcoholic uh, who would, you would have found in the Help Me Out Mission, 
rescue missions or in prison uh, for the first 20 years. Uh, you know, he was married four times. Uh, he was married to the same woman, or he was married, he got married once when he was intoxicated. And he, he went through a tremendous amount of brokenness, and then uh, God redeemed him out of all of that. And he, he met Jean, who was a theologian, Bible historian. And she said, what do you want to do? I, I've always liked, wanted to be a lawyer. He became, uh, went to law school at night and then became a, a prominent Social Security law, Jenkins Block here in Baltimore City. And Bob Jenkins uh, was a man who was full of grace. Uh, and how God used him, how God used him out of his brokenness to serve and to love and to shepherd this flock. In the first 15 years, he was, he was an elder in this body. We need a lot of grace in our church in order to encourage each other and to know that God will still use uh, messed up folks. And so Jesus, uh, Jesus addresses the question of the disciples about it's better uh, not to... To, to Mary, and Jesus, <clears throat> if I can find it, <clears throat> where is that slide? Let me just find it. So, um, he goes into the aspects of, he doesn't challenge that it's not difficult, he actually goes into the aspect that it there is uh, an advantage in being single. He doesn't spend time arguing his position for marriage, neither does he spend time addressing the large society and their view of marriage. Jesus corrects the religious leaders of Israel who should have known their Bibles better. But in this most extensive and intensive uh, instruction, uh, Jesus does not argue the case of marriage, he states it, calling God's design and purpose for marriage. But the emphasis, he says, not everyone who can receive his words on the nature and the kind of marriage are received. He says, only to those whom it has been given. And so then Jesus goes into the verse on why, uh, who has been given to be single. He says, not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it's been given. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of God. And he says, let the one who is able to receive this, receive this. And so Jesus is giving the various options on singleness. Uh, and in this passage, uh, Jesus responds to this question, it's better not to marry. And he affirms, by the way, the value of singleness. And he presents three different positions. Uh, the terminology of eunuchs, those that can't perform because they were born that way. In other words, because of biological or physiological reasons, they were unable to marry. Others were made that way by men, the practice of kings. They would castrate uh, particular men who were serving the, uh, the harems of the king. And then Jesus said, and then there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of God. Uh, let the one who is able to receive it receive it. Uh, and so Jesus gives us these different categories of singleness. Uh, I want to say this about eunuchs. You know, God says in Israel, in Isaiah chapter 56, about eunuchs, 
because eunuchs were often uh, felt shame because of their particular orientation, because of what happened to them. And we find in the scriptures that eunuchs were not allowed to be serving in the temple courts because of their imperfections. And actually, there were standards uh, that represent the holiness of God that kept eunuchs from serving in those capacities. But God understood the shame that came with that. And this is what he says in Isaiah 56. He says, for this is what the Lord says to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who who choose what pleases me and hold fast to my covenant. To them I will give within my temple and the walls a memorial that, and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that they will not be cut off. And so we find that God has a special place in the kingdom of heaven for eunuchs, for these that are broken in different ways. And so Paul gives this uh, aspect of the kingdom of heaven and it gives the aspect of this value in the church. And he says it's been given to those who has been given. You know, marriage is hard. And guess what? Singleness is hard. A Barclay says this. Jesus says that not everyone can accept his words about marriage and singleness, but only those to whom it's been granted. In other words, only the Christian can accept the Christian ethic. Uh, only uh, the Christian... Uh, he says, is the person who is committed uh, to the continual or has the continual help of Jesus and the continual guidance of the Holy Spirit is that person that can be built up for the idea of marriage or singleness. Only with the help of Jesus can one develop the sympathy, understanding, forgiveness, and consideration and love that true marriage requires. And so it is important for us uh, that Christian should be the last people in the world who condemn or ridicule or look down at others who are struggling in their marriages when Christ is not the center. We should have only compassion and love. And so Paul gives us these stipulations in 1 Corinthians 7, and he, he says it's, it's better uh, not to, to marry. Where do you get this power? Where do you get the power to fight these forces that seek to diminish the value of marriage. Where do you get the power to love? Where do you get the power to remain in your state of singleness if that's what God has called you? And if you're in that state of singleness, God gives you power. How do you get that power? Well, Paul says in Ephesians chapter 5, when he talks about the conditions of marriage, he says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Submit, put yourself under, lift the other person up out of your worship and adoration of Christ. You need to be so full of Christ that will give you a sense of how to love each other. There was a, a movie, uh, 50 First Dates with Adam Sandler, some years ago. He was a marine veterinarian on this island in Hawaii, and uh, Drew Barrymore was playing the, this uh, waitress at a breakfast shop. And they developed this fondness for each other. And she had this accident that left her uh, with amnesia every day. She had a short-term memory loss. And so he would go the next day, and he, she, didn't, he, she didn't know who he was. And so he had to keep introducing himself. But he had to keep showing that he loved her, and he had to win her love every single day. And that's why it's called 51st Dates. Uh, 
One person commented, this movie, no matter all the overdone, overacting characters and the fact that Adam Sandler is probably the worst person in the world in the act of crying, is simply the best description of love ever. To have the energy to every day win over the heart of the one you love is what we all should do. Though, though ever often things we don't have the energy to do. He says, I am not a religious person, and this made me feel closer to what people often call God, whatever that is. Maybe I exaggerate, but I want to. And no work of art or genre can be asked to do any more. On a scale of 1 to 10, I give this movie an 11. I'm not sure that you give it an 11, but the reality of God coming after us daily, every single day, pursuing us with his love, we forget how loved we are, how filled up with his grace that we can be. And so Christ gives us this calling. Here's the last applications. Vaughn Roberts talks about singleness. Don't think of singleness as a as second best. Singleness was Jesus' state. Singleness was Paul's state. We are blessed by the strength of singles and those in our midst. Uh, but remember that your family is the whole church. There should be no lonely people in your church. We need to be opening up our homes to one another and relating to one another, not just as a nuclear family, but as a church family. And we need to keep our eyes fixed on heaven. Human marriages are just temporary. There is a heavenly marriage awaiting all of us. But in the applications of marriage, remember that marriage is fundamentally not about us and our happiness, but about reflecting the image of God in our unity. Marriage is not about us and our happiness, but fundamentally about Christ's sacrifice and his love uh, for us. And so finally, marriage takes work. It's about the union of two sinners, but it is a gospel work, and we are called to that as our first ministry for those who are married. And we need to encourage each other in this body to encourage one another for that high calling. To those who've been through divorce, the hardship of divorce, who feel ashamed of failed marriages, who struggle with your sexuality or sexual desires that feel outside of God's calling, or who struggle with your past or whatever your brokenness or whatever your shame you're feeling, you need to know that Jesus loves you, that he wants you in his community, that he wants to have you in a safe place where you can share your struggles and to be built up and to be strengthened in your faith, that Jesus is known for his grace and mercy. He's a friend of sinners and outcasts, and Jesus attracted people in society who felt rejected. And at faith, we need to be a place that loves sinners, for God loves sinners. Christ died for sinners. I'm a sinner. All sinners are welcome here who are seeking to follow Christ's high calling. Let's pray. Lord God, we, uh, we've looked at this passage. There are many things here. There are hard things here. And God, there are high callings here. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are a God of grace, of truth, of wisdom, of righteousness. We pray that we would be faithful to following these high callings, that we might display uh, good news in our relationships, in our marriages, in our singleness, in this church, in this community. For your glory, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together.
Christ alone my hope is found. He is my light, my strength, my song. This cornerstone, this solid ground, firm through the fiercest drought and storm. Heights of love, what depths of peace. When fears are still and striving cease, my comforter, my all in all, of Christ I stand. And now may the love of God the Father and the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the fellowship of his Holy Spirit be with each of you now and forevermore. Amen.